my most sincere thanks to, uh, for, for this uh, opportunity, for this invitation. It's an honor and a pleasure for me to be here among my colleague scholars uh, um, whose work I deeply admire. And I want, to, I want to apologize in advance for the quality of my immigrant English. <coughs> um, so, so also, I want to thank you in advance for your criticisms and suggestions later. So to begin, reading fictional literature is part of our contemplative life. Since it helps us look at various features of human life, in particular those which at first sight seem particular and contingent, but which, considered carefully, reveal some of the wide-ranging, sometimes even necessary, facets. Second, fiction, like art in general, is a playful, ludic endeavor. Most time, its credible aspects are only vicariously true, since imagination and even fancy, as <laughs> you showed there, um, are always present. This kind of playful contemplation helps us catch a glimpse of important things, helps us vicariously feel, feel crucial feelings and capture their resonances. The following remarks are about these insights. Uh, Aristotle spoke about them, okay? Uh, about, about feelings, about, uh, uh, I would say, uh, a little um, prayer, Adam Smith, Hume, be with us and resonances, as well as about our double position facing fiction. It's a double position. On the one hand, we always step back, but we always vicariously participate in what's going on there. So, uh, as we well know now, uh, stories handle events. Events we often assume to have taken place in our actual world a world open to our usual way of experiencing and understanding what is going on. And I will take here for just a minute the example of history, who tells us stories, but they are real stories about the uh, actual um, world. Let's say, to give you a few, a few sad examples of what interests history, is the fall of Carthage, of Rome, of Numancia, of Constantinople, and more recently, you probably forgot about this, the fall of the Berlin uh, War 30 years ago. So when historians tell us these stories, they try to find and recount the events, the, the most plausible versions, and um, trying some also to fit certain beliefs and convictions. And these, in these accounts, um, what is important is the site of the human, uh, the site of the action, namely human situations, projects, and so on. And that remains true also in the case of the fall of Troy. It did place, it did take place in our actual world. Yet for a long time people assumed it to be to belong only to a special kind of imaginary world, the world of myth and poetry. Stories about this world, sometimes called fictional, are also about human situations, projects, conflicts and actions. Yet most often they do not carefully observe the empirical plausibility. And in addition, they emphasize feelings, powerful feelings, much more often than historical narratives do. 
the wrath thing, O goddess of Achilles, the son of Peleus, that, that brought countless ills upon the Achilles. The wrath, the anger, rage, ire, fury is the first word in Homer's Iliad. We all remember it begins with the clash between the hero Achilles and Agamemnon, who, as you remember, as the commander, had the right to do certain things, and he takes the beautiful prisoner of war of Achilles, who, you know, nowadays it's not acceptable, but at that time it was acceptable to have prisoner of war, and, and they love each other, they love each other, because he, uh, Agamemnon himself had to give uh, um, his own prisoner of, 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 of war to um, uh, the uh, priest of Apollos. Uh, uh, this offense was not the first sort of wrath in the story told by the Iliad. We soon find out that the Greeks, angry against Troy, have surrounded and, attached, uh, and attacked it, and in addition, later, after Agamemnon's Abuse of power, we learn that Achilles would himself be devastated when later his beloved friend Patroclus would lose his life because of Achilles' earlier wrath and refusal to fight. Do these events take place in a world that resembles ours? The gods and goddesses who are at home in the Iliad and more generally in the words of myth do not belong to our own actual everyday life to the profane world, as some historians of religion call it in order to distinguish it from the sacred one. I should not have said that because uh, at Chicago we had a visitor from, from, from Paris who talked about um, um, the, uh, um, some of the Greek tragedies and said something very unpleasant about uh, Zeus, uh, that he doesn't exist. And it was in Chicago, and just two minutes after he said that, there was a huge thunder, and one <laughs> of these storms that you own in Chicago, you have this kind of, of storm. So, uh, God, what I said doesn't count, okay, please. Um, so, but uh, at least, uh, Achilles' wrath is ours too. As is the love, jealousy, pride, dejection, loyalty, and capricious treason, capricious treason enacted by the Iliad's characters, be they humans or gods. Fictional world. So the emotions are ours too. And I would like to add that fictional worlds plausibly or implausibly inhabited by gods, goddesses, angels, dem dem demons, theories, humans, um, animals, are not only their home, they are also, we might say, their stage on which the poet first and the story world inhabitants themselves have the power to declaim, speak, and act. So when we listen to these speeches, which include confessions, testimonies, reflections on the state of earth and heavens, we, what interests us the most are the acts and the passions. At least for a long, long time it was like that. <laughs> Most often, however, uh, 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 on the stage, 
fiction presents or alludes to everything that requires action, makes it the desirable or possible, gives it a direction, and leads it to consequences. A general situation first, specific passions, but also the moral setting that includes customs, norms, and ideal goods. So history has to tell a lot, <laughs> if possible, everything that happened to a country, to a geographic area, and so on. on, on uh, even if the topic is boring, for instance, uh, the true history of prosperous, commercial, peaceful times. <laughs> we know that fiction, for instance, some, uh, uh, the Orwell Beck talks about this kind of period, but tries on the contrary, contrary like, uh, to uh, tell a story that would perhaps irresistibly attract our attention. In other words, fictional, fiction must be significant, surprising, and in many cases obviously exaggerated. Moreover, the context, the reasons, intentions, and goals of its actions should be detectable. In the old times, easily, in the more modern times, less easily comprehensible, <laughs> as should be the situations that trigger them, not to speak about the general setting that makes these situations possible. Why is Akio so furious? No need to explain it in detailed speculative terms. As later, in the 19th century, early 20th century, noble people like Balzac explained everything. Uh, Muzil, pages and pages of explanation. He sneezed 20 pages <laughs> <laughs> of essays about, uh, you know, <laughs> um, uh, about <laughs> the, the weather in Vienna. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for Homer, it was enough to show how Agamemnon abused his power as king and leader of the Greeks by taking away this young woman from Achilles. Readers and listeners understand that something at the same time licit and terrible happened. The king did have the authority and power to take her from Achilles in order to replace his own concubine. Yet, the characters, as well as us readers, sense that Agamemnon should have thought at least twice before taking this step, which challenged a few simple advices concerning human links, be they civil, military, political, or religious. Namely, first, fortitude should not trust itself. As Aquinas would put it much later by quoting Ambrose. Second, do not offend. Make sure that your courage, your fortitude, aims at the right action, and be careful not to offend. Because if you don't, the Ilya tells us, reminds us, in the end, the wrath your action causes will send, I quote, many a brave soul hurrying down to Hades and yield many a hero a prey to dogs and vultures. The Iliad is just poetry, fiction, I simply would say, far from being as serious and as useful as actual history. Yet, if only more people had thought about the first few verses of the Iliad more often, 
if more kings, leaders, advisors of presidents meditated about the harsh poetic message telling us the decision triggered by wrath can send many a brave soul hurrying down to hell and yield many heroes a prey to dogs, dogs and vultures. And if they did that, maybe a lot of actual catastrophes might have been avoided. To put it differently, we are so interested in fiction because not only tell story, but tell them in such a way as to throw light on our own human motivations and goals, on the risk we take in following this or that kind of advice and rule, in letting our behavior assert this or that kind of maxim and value. We expect fiction to unveil a variety of moral attitudes, attitudes that give fictional worlds, story worlds, their own specific atmosphere, help them favor certain kinds of human interactions as well as the plots and characters that manifest them. One could say even that fictional story worlds have a, each have a distinct moral profile tacitly perceived and remembered by readers, spectators, and listeners. And since people of my, people born thousands of years ago when they were, just wrote one nine, not two zero, it was a thousand years ago, uh, um, uh, um, still remember the uh, very interesting and important work on fiction um, made by earlier uh, folk, um, folk tales plot analyst, uh, um, uh, uh, Vladimir Prop, the Russian Vladimir, the morphology of folk tales, and the great California American uh, uh, anthropologist Alan Dundas, the morphology of North American Indian folk tales, 64. They are particularly helpful. So they found that in folk tales, the initial situation in which actors pursue their goals involves either a transgression that requires a re-establishment of order, or a strongly felt lack that needs to be satisfied. And certainly the scope of, the, of these two general categories is such that lots of plots which are way beyond uh, um, literary, oral literature um, um, start this way. And in ancient literature, some of the most dramatic stories involve transgressions against the custom of hospitality. An old, highly respectable habit that separates savage from tamer ways of life. To receive someone in one's home protects travelers and foreigners from danger and thus asserts our common humanity. Conversely, however, and that's very important, those hosted in someone's home are expected to revere the host's dignity, family, and prosperity. Equally widespread is the sense that kidnapping, abducting people from their home or from their native land and carrying them far away in order to subdue, if not even to enslave them, is a crime. We won't have time here. I wanted, uh, 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 we could have talked hours about uh, one of the most beautiful stories of uh, uh, Melville, uh, Benito Sereno, which is precisely about that. The slaves were taken away. They just want to go back 
home, okay? That, uh, anyway, uh, um, but it's not just, uh, that was a late example, a very interesting one. Um, another such uh, custom required respect for mat matrimony, or at least for the durable unions between man and woman, be they fully legitimate or not, okay? Yeah, very important, yeah. The conflict narrated in the Iliad would not have happened if Paris, the son of Priam, the king of Troy, did not transgress the custom of hospitality. The prohibition to kidnap and the respect for matrimony. When he seduced and eloped with Helen, Menelaus' wife, while being a guest in her husband's home. We should not forget, it's very, very basic there. Moreover, the Greeks' losses in the Trojan War might have been less devastating if Agamemnon did not take the young woman from Achilles, whose beloved prey of war she was. These actions not only hurt those whom they deprived for what was customarily theirs, they also signaled the presence of a terrifying version of disorder. The neglect, worth the disruption of the tacit rules that hold the human world together. And I want to emphasize for uh, 10 seconds the word tacit. They are not written rules. They're, these are those rules which everybody knows they exist and they are not yet written in laws, constitutions, re regulations, and so on. They are written in the heart of people. Okay. <clears throat> Old stuff. So, um, the same kind of issue are at the root of Oedipus' story. So let's forget a little bit about all the Viennese waltzes uh, uh, imagined about uh, um, um, uh, the Oedipus story. And um, remember that long before Oedipus' birth, his father, Laius, still young and unmarried, had to leave Thebes, his native city, and was hosted by Pelops, the king of Pisa in Peloponnesus. Once there, Laius abducted and raped Chrysippus, the teenage son of Pelops. As a punishment for his crime, later, after Laius ma married Jocasta, an oracle warned them not to have children. The couple failed to obey. And when their child, the male, was born, you know the story, he, uh, that time they didn't have abortion the way the, uh, we have now in the New York State. Uh, um, uh, uh, he was uh, exposed on, on Mount um, uh, Cicero with his legs bound to make sure that he wouldn't survive and so on. This well-known story makes sense in the light of the old cost customs that required respect for hospitality and condemned kidnapping and also recommended some control of the erotic impulses. In addition, because guilt was not limited in, the, uh, old, um, in older societies, and it's still true in many cases in ours, um, guilt was not limited to the authors of a crime, but included their descendants as well, hereditary punishment would hit the next generation, as happened in the case of Oedipus after Laius' death. Equally important in the um, legend of Oedipus, is that at the place of someone's birth, old traces of guilt never completely disappear. 
Oedipus is an admirable hero as long as people, including himself, assume that he was born in Corinth. But he turns into a parricide and incestuous, incestuous son as soon as his true Theban roots became apparent. So, in the ancient fictional world, acceptable behavior has to respect strong customary obligations, whose importance for the survival of human families and cities was so obvious that they didn't need explanation. And the plots of legends, myths, folk tales, epic poems, and tragedies are so striking, so unforgettable, precisely because their topic is the brutal violation of these obligations. And if beyond just the customs, one looks for a moral philosophy that teaches the agents how to proceed in such situation, that is, how to avoid temptation and instead to do what needs to be done, certainly one must to turn to Aristotle, to Thomas Aquinas, more recently to a beautiful description by Joseph Pieper uh, on the four cardinal virtues. In, uh, virtues are based on good insights that lead through right training to good habits, that thus encouraging proper behavior and resistance to wrong impulses. And I won't go here through the detail, but also um, Cicero's ideas about humanitas as being, as he says, they, uh, to bring to the common fund what is useful for all, exchanging our good offices, giving, receiving, and thus through our skills as well as through our work and fortune, tighten the mutual association between human beings. These are some of the, uh, the uh, uh, maxims or the, the, the moral reflections that would, seem, uh, would um, uh, explicitly sort of defend what is simply sensed tacitly by these old customs. So um, this helps us realize that by um, targeting a myriad of concrete situations in which some certain customs, maxims, norms should apply, literature always insists on how difficult it is to grasp and follow them. Including Welbeck. <laughs> how difficult it is to believe Welbeck. <laughs> when we read Aquinas' limpid, concise presentation of virtues, duties, and rules of behavior. One is pleasantly surprised to see how evident they are. <laughs> when reading the Iliad, by contrast, <laughs> one does not quite know how to assess the terrible reciprocity of violence that rules its character's actions, that the, the right, the obligatory links between offense and revenge, wrath and reprisal, harm and retaliation, how to understand. So, yet although Aristotelian and Thomist ethics rejected lack of prudence, impulsive fortitude, many writers admire Achilles as a strong exemplary hero. As did, for instance, early 19th century, some early 19th century poets. And I, well, a great poet, but on on this topic, you know, uh, namely Hölderlin. Hölderlin is a great admirer of, yeah. And um, uh, who 
they were quite sure that Homer himself had shared their feelings. It's only later, after the tragedy of World War I, reciprocity of violence for a while ceased to elicit unexamined admiration. It is then that Simone Weil essay, The Iliad or the Poemer of Force, 1940. If anybody here didn't read it, you should. It's 50 pages. It's really worthwhile. Okay. Um, um, not only offered the most art articulate Catholic expression of its rejection, but also plausibly argued that Homer was on her side. The same difficult links between norm and behavior informs a different set of fictional worlds, that of chivalric stories. So we go a little bit later. Fortitude is still admired, and it's often wiser than the one described by Homer, given that it is explicitly associated with a generous defense of common justice, as is the case in all Chrétien de Troyes narrative poems and in Wolfram von Eschenbach's Parsifal, or in the later an anonymous, uh, no, not anonymous, he just has several authors, uh, Amadis de Gaula. In these works, fights still abound. Their origin is still an offense, a transgression, but instead of being a personal offense against the main character, the valiant knight, the wrongdoing targets someone else. And the knight has, or has received from high above, the arduous task of remaking it. Does this mean that the knight is a perfect hero? No. In Chrétien de Troyes, uh, the knight of the lion, the protagonist, Yvain, is not perfect. He doesn't keep a promise he made to his noble wife. And lots of adventure are needed in order for him to um, uh, become again a human being. Uh, he's so deeply ashamed that he hides his face and would spend lots of time in punishing the persecutors of women and to return home only after he succeeds in reestablishing his great reputation. Even stronger, in Eschenbach Parsifal, the young knight is a kid. He fails to accomplish a task from God. It's just that God assigned this task to him without telling him. He doesn't know that. Careful. Careful. The task is to ask the sick, a sick king, Amfortas, how he feels to show some compassion for his suffering. But he's ashamed because he's young, he's in a public space, and he just doesn't say anything. And as a result, he would have to cross the world searching for Amfortas and accomplishing various chivalric tasks because God finally allows him to see the sick king again and express his compassion. In such cases, the protagonist's actions are never self-centered, as the old, old heroic retaliations used to be. The medieval errant knight protects people who happen to need help, and in some cases, repents for his own past faults. Heroic strength is here the servant of charity and redemption. Be it said in passing, 
Cervantes' Don Quixote, which we should not forget, is a parody. It's a parody of this kind of chivalric novel, which Cervantes and emphasizes Cervantes, who wanted to make a good parody, especially in the beginning, emphasizes the utterly useless actions of this um, um, knight of La Mancha. And also his proud self-involvement, he's incredibly proud of having done nothing, um, by contrast to the humility of these medieval knights. As for this pre-targeted adventure, pre-targeted, and which you have a mysterious kind of task that heavens reserved in advance for individual knights, this will reappear in later fictional works, turning into, we'll call a bit later, by, uh, this would last until midnight, so at 11 p.m. or talk about. Um, uh, the various forms of incumbency, we'll see what it means, that is of generous actions that to some extent inexplicably the character has to perform. The Christian resonance of such stories is difficult to miss. Okay, this is about transgression. Let's now have a look at plots generated by luck, by a luck. Two kinds of durably successful stories fit this category. In one of them, the sublunary, sublunary world persecutes a couple whose love comes from high above. The two fugitives lovers, the two fugitive lovers reach happiness only after they discover their secret royal origin. <laughs> Heliodorus' Ethiopian story, the most successful idealist novel, it's an old one, but it was translated in European language only in the 16th, 17th century, um, tells such a story, and as do its numerous early modern imitations, including Persiles and Sigis Munda by Cervantes himself. The other kind of plot, triggered by a lack, involves a loner, a picaro or a picara, born in poverty or reduced to it, who must ignore every rule of honesty in order to find food and shelter. La Salio de okay, is one of these. Or Mol Flanders by default. If you didn't read Mol Flanders, don't read it because it's a sin. Okay? It's about <laughs> You witness that, okay? How people laugh when I, I say serious things, okay? <laughs> it's too serious. Yes, yeah, too serious, I'm sorry. Yeah. And uh, um, early modern narratives abound in such characters, many of them managing after a while to convert to good life with man Alfarache in, in uh, Matteo Aleman's novel, Mol Flanders herself. Oh, you can read it because she converts again, sorry. Okay. Uh, um, while a few never free themselves from immorality. And Defoe's unforgettable Robinson Crusoe offered a synthesis between these two kinds of lack stories. The main character is both a loner lost on a deserted island and someone whose inner strength and trust in God rival those of the blessed fugitives in the Ethiopian story. In such situations, the main characters do not fully belong to the surrounding world. Their moral greatness of alternatively their wicked deeds project them far above or far below their fellow humans. In such cases, the Aristotelian Thomist virtues 
understood as practice of good habits within human communities are partly replaced by a robust assertion of the couple or individual outside the world. Or of the individual completely outside the world in the picaresque or single hero stories. Where do these kinds of human individuals find their moral guidance? Either in a strong alliance between their inner core and the transcendent divinity, as it happens, in novels like Heliodorus uh, and their later imitations, or to a decisive neglect of com uh, uh, com common moral rules in picaresque stories. In both, case, uh, both cases, a new kind of moral attitude supplements the morality based on community, tradition, customs, good habits required for successful coexistence. It suspends the common rules in order to imagine perfect characters who follow an exceptionally strict set of moral requirements supported by a transcendent divinity, saints, or a full neglect of the moral links between humans, including, in the worst cases, I don't know if you read Roxana by default, um, the parental links between mother and child. As the French anthropologist Louis Dumont argued a generation ago, the rise of the individual outside the human world became possible thanks to the discovery of this holy alliance between the divinity and the ascetic, the loner. Respected by everybody. Respected. He's stronger than the kings, he's stronger than the community because he's directly linked up there. And in order to do that, he renounces the two greatest pleasure and problems of human life, namely to have children and to have money, <laughs> okay, wealth and, 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 and fertility. Um, um, so, um, um, and we have here the ascetic, the saint, and in these novels that I mentioned, there is a more sort of um, a humanized version, which is the blessed couple. Symmetrically, from the stories about fully wicked characters, we learn that a brutal cut with the common moral rules is equally possible. And it opens a misguided parallel road. It's something, as I try to, to suggest, it happened a little bit later. Uh, 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 Heliodorus belongs to the, to the Hellenistic period, and it was rediscovered uh, during the late Renaissance. Um, and, 18th and early 19th century romantic narratives take full advantage of these two individualist paths. The young Werther in Goethe's novella hesitates between them, between these two paths. His pure yet unhappy love for Charlotte comes from his deepest insight and from far above, while his suicide rejects all links with common morality. In the half-forgotten beautiful narrative poem, Jocelyn by Lamartine, that nobody reads, and it's a big mistake. Um, the main character, uh, uh, written in the 1820s, I think, it, uh, maybe 30, um, um, the main character, a young villager, chooses to join a Catholic seminary in order to leave his inheritance to his sister's da dowry. Okay. He does something for somebody else. And 
the French Revolution starts, and during the revolutionary reign of terror, he has to survive the persecution of religion, and he leads an angelic solitary life hidden in an inaccessible mountain cavern. And later he falls in love with a young innocent country girl, but he would nevertheless accept to be ordained as a priest because he needs to help the Catholic Church rebuild its clergy. The opposite option is that of Byron Manfred, much better, <laughs> because also it's a bit much shorter. La Martin is interminable, okay? uh, uh, And if you read it, the first half is okay. Who, after having willingly transgressing the customary interdiction of incest, breaks all links with society, refuses to repent, and you know what happens. I listen only to myself and act according to the precepts I find in my own depths. Werther and Manfred seem to say, these precepts have little to do with customs. Habit, therefore virtue, or with charity, friendship towards one fellow human beings. The first part of Goethe's Faust depicts the danger involving, involved in this choice. Everybody's on their knees when you speak about Faust, so don't, don't, don't hit me after I want, uh, what I want to say, please. <laughs> Faust is an old scholar who, instead of being happy of having spent a life reading books, okay, he wants to recover his youth. I cannot believe that. <laughs> I tell my students, sorry to interrupt you because it's very dramatic. Uh, I tell my students, you know, um, it's okay to be young. I know it's, a, it's an illness. It's an illness. It's, it's, it's an illness. But, you know, it cures by itself. Just with time. <laughs> with time. It's, just, it's not a problem, okay? You'll see, you'll see later how you'll feel, okay? Yeah, okay. So <laughs> he recovers his youth. <laughs> sorry. He seduces an innocent young woman, leaves her pregnant, forsakes her, and after she abandons the infant, pays no attention to her trial and execution. Faust's constant pursuit of new aims makes him forget the human links he has just built. The mobility of his interests was deeply admired, was deeply admired by late 19th and early 20th century thinkers, one of them, Oswald Spengler, okay, going as far as to label modern European civilization Faustian. This was a curse, I'm sure. By contrast, the generosity of Lamartine Jocelyn has a celestial resonance, which, similarly to the case of the medieval knight just mentioned, leads him, leads him to pursue, insofar as possible, the good of his fellow humans neglecting his own. The solitude of these romantic individuals is spectacular. As though the main task of fictional, task of fictional worlds, in which, uh, worlds in which they live and act consisting in enhancing their uniqueness. At about the same time, in realist narratives, <laughs> okay, um, all, um, one also finds characters with high moral standing challenge the customs of the milieu in which they live, without, however, undermining the plausibility of the story. And here is the greatest one, Samuel Richardson Clarissa, who acts against the customary rule, which in her society advised women 
who lost their virginity to marry the man who seduced or raped them. Cervantes has various stories about, uh, about this. <clears throat> Clarissa's own norms require, by contrast, self-reliance, mutual respect, explicit consent. They involve what has been called autonomy. It's too much autonomy, it's too strong, but still capture some of her <clears throat> principles. Um, the capacity to make non-customary, non-habitual decisions based on one's own judgment. One of its best-known formulations is Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative. We'll talk about it in a It's very, very strong. Uh, which advises individuals, namely you and me, to act, I quote, according to the maxim whereby one can Uh, will what? Uh, I'm, I'm, sorry, Kant, be with me. Uh, 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 to act according to the maxim whereby one can, at the same time, will an action and will uh, uh, according to this maxim and will that it should become a universal law. Namely, I am the one who should uh, 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 proclaim universal laws. Okay, we'll see, we'll see. The, uh, uh, this rule rejects the mor correctly rejects the morality based on only local customs and one's usual environment, which in Kant's explicit view and in Clarissa's implicit one does not always fit a world inhabited by self-reliant human beings. Many 19th century female novel characters observed a wiser and more moderate version of this imperative, okay? Something like act according to a maxim that enhances your self-reliance. They discover it after, and that's the beauty of most of the, the uh, novel of the first uh, half of the 20, uh, 19th century, they discover it after having first made a wrong choice. That's almost a rule. Even, either by listening to the trivial advice of their close relative, uh, like uh, uh, Anne Elliot <coughs> so nicely uh, analyzed this uh, morning by Laura, or letting themselves be seduced by an experienced womanizer. Helen Grant in Anne Bronte's The Tenant of Valley Fall. Okay? <coughs> Dorothea Brooke in Middlemarch by George Eliot makes the opposite error by marrying the much older Reverend Edward Cosavan, who she believes is deeply devoted to a universally respectable career and erudite studies. In fact, he's a pedantic scholar whose work has no value. <laughs> Later on, after his death, she would fall in love with an adorable young man, marry him, and finally reach happiness. Her version of the imperative might be formulated act according to a maxim that you would enhance your happiness in your own milieu. <laughs> or, simply put, may marry the person who is your right mate. <laughs> okay. Or, how do you find this person, she would ask. <laughs> then, the non-Kant here would say, by listening to your own heart and being prudent. <laughs> okay. uh, ra rather than speculating about universal laws. Okay. You don't have time for that. <laughs> Jen, you, know, you, you showed it so well this morning uh, about, about uh, um, Elliot. 
she understood him. Okay. Paying attention to one's own heart has already been the main concern of several 18th century sentimental novels that um, resonate so well with David Hume and Adam Smith's reflections on moral sentiments, sympathy, and compassion, Vicar Wakefield, Evelina, and so on. And it would be a main theme in 19th century narratives written during what a period which is less studied, uh, unfortunately, uh, that I would call it the healing period. The healing period. Um, we don't realize nowadays, far away and uh, in another galaxy, we don't realize how uh, shocked the European countries, uh, um, including France, were in, after 1815 for about at least 30 years. The wounds of this, of, of the European wars, they lasted from uh, 92 to uh, um, um, 1792 to 1815, they, um, they caused the death of about about between one-fourth and one-third of a young man everywhere. Okay, can you imagine what this can, can mean? And, uh, uh, in, <clears throat> the, um, the difficulty of accepting uh, this new society, now commercial capitalist, uh, which was better than the wars uh, before, but still they didn't, they, they didn't have anything completely appealing. So uh, these stories focus, still focus on the age-old um, topic of aggression and reciprocity, but also start to follow and be interested in the uh, pursuit of personal success, in social promotion. And it's a society of a new and unexpected mobility in a certain kind of equality. And Balzac's novel of social promotion and political corruption are very, very powerful. But also, this is a period when people appreciate a lot the teachings about grace, generosity, and remorse. And France, the Catholic ones. Um, for instance, in Balzac, uh, people, everybody read Lost Illusion, but there are novels like The Village Doctor and The Country Priest, which are precisely about people who made, did something wrong, did something very wrong, and they need to be forgiven, they need, uh, and they have uh, uh, the generosity and grace to work for the uh, happiness of people in the countryside, of poor people, and so on. And there is a great uh, uh, Austrian writer, Adabel, Adalbert Stifter, who speaks about that in this novel, Brigitta and Der Hagestolz, which is fantastic, okay. Um, um, Dickens incessantly reflected on this topic, okay, uh, on uh, um, uh, the family links in a time and a world in which family origin ceased to be the only main or the main factor in establishing the social status of a human being. Orphans, illegitimate children, their happy or unhappy adoption, the complicated mixtures of revenge and generosity are the backbone of almost all his novels, from Oliver Twist to Great Expectation. And in the latter, which was so nicely analyzed uh, yesterday, uh, I want to add that uh, 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 Pip and Estella's personalities are from childhood to maturity shaped by someone else's desire to reward or take revenge. It is as if they were the children of the people from the healing period. 
were hurt and they just want, okay, with my child I will do something different, or with a child I will do something different. So um, um, Abel Magwitch, the convict whom Pip helped to escape from the police, anonymously offers the boy a gift that will allow him to become a gentleman. Mrs. Habisham, abandoned by her fiancé, who by the way is the same person who, uh, um, who um, um, tricked uh, um, Abel Magwitch, um, that would allow him to become, a, uh, uh, but uh, on, the, on, the, on the day of her wedding, trained Estella to hate men. It's, I thought it's easy. You just look a little bit. <laughs> Uh, sorry. Uh, um, can one truly design and build someone else's life? Interesting question. Pip will not become a gentleman, yet would be much happier. Estella would end up by liking men, and according to one of the two alternatives then known of the novel, by loving Pip, who always adored her. And she is the daughter of Abel. Very, very, yeah. Uh, these characters, however, far from following a version of the categorical imperative, okay, there's absolutely no, no trace of it, okay, no trace. Yeah. they act on impulses of justice and kindness. They try to be just, and they are kind. They act kindly. Thus, hitting exactly the two main requirements of Arthur Schopenhauer, anti-Kantian morality. <laughs> much closer to the Christian morality and also much closer to the Buddhist morality. <laughs> and, and, uh, so gradually many late 19th century novelists would uh, adopt this approach to the human feelings and action. The sources of action in their work would include a life of suffering, a blind will concealed in the depths of one's soul, which is absolutely not sexual. So Freud, for Freud was inspired by that, but we did not reach at that stage. Uh, a noble effort to detach oneself from its chains, a silent desire for justice, an instinctive drive to be kind, all preventing the main characters to be part of an active and durable couple. It's very, very, these are novels of solitude. These are a fashion of this. Um, um, Flaubert already wrote Madame Bovary by then, and then, then his friend Maupassant told him, oh, it's like Schopenhauer. Oh my goodness, you read Schopenhauer? Yes. Yes, this is exactly what I always knew is the case I wanted to say. And a few other examples is his, uh, uh, Flaubert, a simple heart, a later uh, uh, story, 30 pages, worth reading. Theodore Fontane, Ephibrist, and Cecile. Cecile is less known. If you want to read something very interesting, read Cecile by, Theodor, by, by um, Theodore Fontane. It's, uh, it's short, 200 pages. It's a little bit slow and boring, but the, the, the ending is fantastic. Um, Thomas Hardy, The Return of the Native, Benito Perez Galdós Nazarín, Esa de Cuerosh, a great Portuguese writer, The Mayas, and one should add a novel which is not too short, 
but it's very, very good, as you showed up by just reading one fragment, uh, one, one, one excerpt. To Marcel Proust, à la recherche du temps perdu, which was a completely Schopenhauer-inspired um, writer. <clears throat> so in this context, the worst attitude is to attempt to take advantage of the relative increase of mobility and personal freedom in order to use it for egocentric aims. Since I'm the center of the world, and apparently I can decide what steps I will take on my life path, my satisfaction becomes the major goal. Is the maxim followed by Flaubert's Emma Bovary, by Tolstoy Anna Karenina, and in the first part of Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment by Raskolnikov. The tragedy of the former two characters and the deep repentance of the latter warn readers about the dark side of individual free land. And they are not against women. It is not an anti It is against a society in which people can imagine that can make every decision they want about themselves. Okay? They click their links. Conversely, the urge to do the good may go beyond a clear sense of duty. Have you seen the film Les Miserables? <laughs> hmm? The musical? Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, I will get to it. Not unlike the adventures reserved in advance by heaven for some medieval knights, Parsifal being the best known, the task of protecting Cosette, this little girl, in Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, is assigned, one does not know by whom, to Jean Valjean. And he feels that this girl is not his daughter. The girl is not his daughter. He has no explicit duty concerning her. Yet he forgets about everything else, and he spends his life making sure that she would have why? In Henry James, an author that I must suggest, if you don't know that secret, if you have any kind of difficulty in reading Henry James, which happens, it happened to me until age 55, uh, long ago. Uh, 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 and somebody <laughs> told me that I should read it aloud, because he dictated it. You know? And then I started to understand what's going on. So you could do slowly, and you don't have to shout. Just read like that. And suddenly you understand what's going on. And, and, and in, the, in, in this beautiful portrait of a lady, Isabel Archer returns to her unworthy husband. Why? She returns to her unworthy Yeah, if you accept this idea of what it's called, incumbency. It is incumbent on me to do certain things. It's incumbent on me to save Cosette and I will spend my life. Why? I don't know. Leave me alone. And she promises she is the only person who could take care of this man's illegitimate daughter that nobody takes care of. And at some point, they make friends. And Isabel tell, tells her, don't worry, I will be back. I will be back. And she comes back. In the fictional world imagined by these works, human links may just depend on chance and proximity. A good person 
knows in his, in her heart that taking care of someone made by chance might fall on and only on them. It is incumbent to me to do it. These characters feel as if on their life path they had sense an irresistible call that ties them to another human being and at the same time one should add as if they had sensed the incomprehensible, incomprehensible presence of a veiled God. To conclude, uh, one would certainly uh, think up a coherent taxonomy, a taxonomy of moral attitudes imagined by fiction, by noting, for instance, that moral autonomy contradicts the power of customs, while altruism rebuffs egotistic impulses. One can also distinguish between, on the one hand, the ideographic works whose characters follow a single set of moral rules as happened in early modern Heliodorian works in Heliodorian, uh, picaresque stories and contemporary popular fiction as it happens in The Lord of the Rings, for instance. <coughs> Beautiful. Um, on the other hand, case analysis fiction, which was so powerful in the 17th, 18th, 19th, and the 20th century describes easy-to-imagine situations that strongly suggest a wider network of moral notions. We should not forget, however, that we all read and resonate and resonate to literary works written recently or long ago, close to us or far away, works whose moral profiles are often difficult to reduce to a simple, clear-cut definition. By portraying fundamental customs, virtuous habits, self-reliant individuals, their feelings, and their capacity to choose, the blend of justice and kindness, the touch of grace, and the power of incumbency, fictional words inv invite us to watch and recognize the plurality of principles and cases involved in our own moral life. I'm thinking of a Chesterton short story, uh, one of the Father Brown stories. Yeah. When someone asked Father Brown how he, um, how he is able to solve all the, yeah. the crimes that he has solved, and he says, because I have committed them all. <laughs> um, so there's a sense in which the fact that his, you know, his person, his character, makes him more sympathetic to what is in the heart of man. Yeah. But on the other hand, uh, it seems that a person with a certain moral formation is almost more so limited in their imagination. Like um, an excellent athlete, I think, can imagine fewer possibilities uh, for their nightlife on account of the fact that they're wed to the excellence of their craft. And so things that may formerly have been tempting are no longer the case. So I'm just trying, I'm kind of just struggling between does, does one's own moral formation make one more sympathetic to moral failings or the, or the spectrum of moral experience? Or does it, in a certain sense, not necessarily crab your style, but um, remove from you a kind of imagination of possibilities that no longer lie within very your It's very, very It's a good question. Uh, I, uh, what I can express is my desire for my knowledge, okay? Uh, I don't know, but I, I, would like to be, I would like to believe that we can capture a lot, even if we don't go 
let's say, uh, if, 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 even if one doesn't drink all night, it's possible to think about and be sensitive to what happens to people who drink all night. And uh, uh, I personally would, I don't think uh, I, uh, I would ever imagine something like Raskolnikov, the stupidity that you are superior to every human being and do whatever you want. But I understand and I'm sensitive to this type of exaggeration of the self-importance. One understands. So it's a question, uh, the, the emphasis when we study and we uh, teach literature might be on the term vicariously. It's not that I participate in that. It's a, uh, I vicariously, it is, a, it is a game, it is a play, we play this, okay? This great philosopher, Danto, taught in this university, uh, Arthur Danto, he talks about the transfiguration of the commonplace. But you can say literature, fiction, art transfigurate things which are around us. And by participating in this transfiguration, certainly you won't ever be like uh, as wonderful as Heliodorus' characters or as stupid as Don Quixote. Uh, um, but you can participate vicariously in that and understand. Okay, so the, the main thing is to train this point in, in our students or in ourselves to, 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 to widen this kind of playful participation. <laughs> so that doesn't mean, and, and Don Quixote is about that as a book. Because Cervantes tells you, you read um, like Don Quixote, this medieval, this errant knight's novels. Okay, enjoy them, okay, no problem. Do not try to become a, 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 an errant knight next day. Yeah. Appreciated very much your reference to Simone Weil as a reader yeah. of the Iliad. Yeah, thank you. Um, and she's an example of a philosopher, right? You know, who read the fairy tales, who um, read um, works of fiction, who read the plays of Racine, and you know, and she uh, and she read them philosophically, right? So I was wondering what that teaches us about about ourselves as readers. You know, do we need to be philosophers when we read? I mean, it, what kind of hat can we put on, you know, to be able to read what, uh, the question, my, my question would be, what kind of hat we put on, or what kind of heart we have in, okay? Uh, because it, it seems to me that if, um, if we teach literature, uh, we could be philosophers, uh, uh, literature specialists. The main thing is to let uh, this resonance be there in you, to let yourself resonate. To, the values, to the norms, to the moral impulses, and so on, and to their feelings. Um, um, resonance is partly, um, 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 partly um, uh, a responsibility of the heart and partly a responsibility of the mind. So uh, don't suffocate yours. I wouldn't suffocate my students with philosophical uh, terms, but now and then it's necessary. They are very important yeah, when you talk about uh, 18th century uh, um, uh, moral philosophy about what Aquinas about they, they suddenly simplify it, but still the main the, the, the main pedal is the pedal of the resonances of, of, of what your heart vibrates. 
perhaps that's a good place to leave it. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for your vibration. <laughs>